If you have your Bible this morning, you might want to open it up to Acts chapter 1. First chapter of Acts, that's where we'll find the text that we want to look at together for a few minutes this morning. If you're a baseball fan at all, then Lou Gehrig is a name that's familiar to you. He played first base for the New York Yankees for 17 seasons, hitting cleanup right behind Babe Ruth in their famed Murderer's Row lineup in the late 1920s. He appeared in 2,130 consecutive games. That was a record that stood for over 50 years. In 1939, he was elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. But most of us probably also know Lou Gehrig's name because of the terrible disease that he was diagnosed with, ALS. In the spring of 1939, spring training, it was apparent that he had lost all of his usual power. And by the end of April, his statistics were the worst of his career, so that he voluntarily benched himself for the first game in May. He never appeared in another baseball game again. He officially retired after receiving his diagnosis from the Mayo Clinic the following month. And on July 4th, the Yankees decided to hold what they called Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. That's what you see here. They had a massive celebration there on the field. Gehrig was given gifts and trophies and plaques, and then he stood up to address the crowd. And in words that have become legendary, he said, fans, for the past few weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. The crowd gave him a standing ovation that lasted for two minutes. The account in the New York Times the next day said that it's one of the most touching scenes ever witnessed on a ball field. And it made even hard-boiled veteran reporters swallow hard. See, it's never easy to say goodbye. We've all experienced that in different ways in our lives. Abby and I felt that recently, for example, when we said goodbye to all of those people that we loved at the church in Spicewood, where we've been for so many years. A lot of you parents have felt this when you dropped your kids off at college or when they moved out of the house. And I imagine most all of us at one point or another have been with a friend or a loved one in their final illness knowing that we were saying goodbye to them for the last time. This morning, we want to talk about the disciples saying goodbye to Jesus. This is an event that we normally refer to as the Ascension. And it's interesting that not all of the Gospel accounts deal with this. Luke is the only one that talks about it in any detail. He alludes to it at the end of his Gospel, And then we come to the beginning of the book of Acts, where he goes into it in more detail. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke then records Jesus' instructions to the apostles. They're to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promised Holy Spirit. They're then to go and to be his witnesses throughout all of the earth. And then Luke writes in verse 9, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We know the big events of Jesus' life. Most of us, if we're here this morning, we already know about his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration. We spent several weeks now looking in detail on Sunday morning at the drama surrounding his crucifixion and his resurrection. But seldom, if ever, do we talk about or do we think about the culmination of all of this, the ascension. Maybe that's at least partly because we don't really know how to make sense of it. Why did Jesus have to go? He must have known that if he went, he was more likely to be forgotten. That's what we see in a lot of the world today, right? People who live as if he never came. And two, he could look and he could see all down through the ages all of the terrible things that would happen. Why not just stay? The disciples didn't want him to go. And in a lot of ways, we are in the same position as the disciples. We are, as it were, staring up into the sky, wishing that he were here with us. Goodbyes are hard. This morning, I want us to consider together for a few minutes why the ascension is significant and why it had to happen. First of all, there had to be some point in time when Jesus returned to the Father. And to really understand this, we need to remember what the resurrection is. In the resurrection, God invaded this world with His power. He's fulfilling His old, long-standing covenant promise to deal with evil and with sin and with death. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the proof that God is making all things new. And that one day, all of his people are going to be made just like him. But see right there, that points out to us already that Jesus wasn't really a part of this old world anymore. And certainly he had a physical body. He could walk. He talked. He even ate and drank. Remember, Luke records for us here in Acts, he presented himself alive to them by many proofs. 
But on the other hand, we also read that he appears and he disappears at will. He walks through doors. He's got a body like us, but then again, unlike us too. So he's both physical, but he's also something else. He's metaphysical, if we can use that word. He's beyond the physical. He's something that our senses can't fully grasp. There's no category for that. That old body wasn't abandoned in the tomb, but it's not just a a reanimated corpse either. There's something new, something different. This is a foretaste of God's new creation, the age to come invading the present age. And one day, we're all going to be like that, resurrected, recreated just like that. But not yet. And so Jesus had to return to heaven until it was time for God to make all things new, all of his people made just like him. So when Jesus is lifted up here, we shouldn't think of this, I don't think we think of it this way, but we shouldn't think of him going up into outer space or something like that. He's going into God's space, God's dimension. The cloud here, this isn't just a convenient stage prop. The cloud comes and Jesus disappears behind it. This is a sign of God's presence. Think about it in Scripture. The pillar of cloud in the wilderness symbolized God's presence, guiding the Israelites around. Or the cloud of smoke that appeared in the temple when God was present. Jesus has gone to God's dimension of reality, what we typically refer to as heaven. But one day, that dimension and our world are going to be brought together. God is going to dwell with his people forever. That's what the end of Revelation promises. In the meantime, Jesus has been seated in the place of honor at God's right hand. Peter says that in his sermon on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The ascension recalls a scene from the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. He talks about one like a son of man, that is one like a human being, but he comes with the clouds of heaven and he goes to the ancient of days, that is to God. And God gives him a kingdom. He's made to rule over all of the nations. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority, the place of honor. He's been seated there, and the victory has been won already. But it's awaiting the consummation of all things. It's awaiting the end yet. He had to return to the Father to accomplish all of this. Secondly, The ascension was necessary for Jesus to be able to pour out the Spirit. Jesus had promised his apostles on the last night before his crucifixion, back in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. He says, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says a little bit later in the same chapter, 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The going away of Jesus was essential for the coming of the Spirit. And the coming of the Spirit was essential because it ushered in the church. Peter says that, his sermon, Acts chapter 2 in verse number 33, and he connects it here to Jesus' ascension, to his exaltation, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. One of the greatest promises of the Old Testament is that when the Messiah comes, when God does his new thing, when God takes charge and sets things right, he's going to pour out his spirit. That's what Peter says there on Pentecost, that all of this is that which was promised by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I think of the words of the prophet Ezekiel in particular, from Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. In the Old Testament, God gave his spirit, but only to leaders of the people, and that only temporarily. But the great promise of the new covenant is that God is going to give his spirit as an abiding possession to his people. That's what Peter says in Acts 2, 38. Those who respond to the gospel, who repent and are baptized, they'll receive remission of sins, and they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives His Spirit as a gift to His people. He helps us to live holy lives. He helps us to bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Paul lists as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. The Spirit is the seal. He's the sign that identifies us as God's children. None of this would have been possible if Jesus had not ascended and poured out the Spirit on Pentecost. Finally, the ascension was necessary for Jesus to begin his new, permanent heavenly ministry. Someone has said that at the ascension, Jesus left the here for the everywhere. He left the now for the eternal. He left the first century to fill all the centuries. You see, we shouldn't get the idea that just because Jesus is not here now in the sense that we can't see him sitting here on the first row, that means that he's not active. 
You go back to chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts, Luke refers to his gospel account. He says, in my former volume, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication there is that if the gospel is what he began to do and to teach, Acts is what he continued to do and to teach. In particular, in Acts, we see him working through the early church. But we see elsewhere in Scripture, plainly stated, Jesus is still at work today. At God's right hand, he works as our interceding high priest, making sure that we have the mercy and the grace that we need to live a life of service. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Our high priest is not one who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in all points, as we are, yet without sin. And so because of that, we can go boldly to the throne of grace so that we might find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Jesus is active as our advocate before the Father when we confess our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 2. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In his exalted and glorified state there at the right hand of God, he's promised to be with his people always. Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he tells him to go and to make disciples in every nation. And then he promises that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And there are several passages that don't just tell us that Jesus is at work. They show us he's at work. In Acts chapter 7, we read about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He stands there before the Sanhedrin. He testifies to the fact that they rejected the Messiah. They killed the righteous one. And as he's on trial, it says that he looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul who held the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. He encountered the ascended Lord, and it says there to us, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. About 70 years later, the Apostle John, in exile on the island of Patmos, the glorified Jesus appeared to him on the Lord's day. And he writes there in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
the resurrected, ascended, glorified, exalted Lord, sitting there at the right hand of God, is still very much alive and active. So the question for us then is how will we respond to him? First of all, most obviously, in worship. That's what those earliest Christians did there. They returned back from the Mount of Olives. They went back to that upper room of the house where they'd been staying, and it says that they prayed. The ascended Lord is both of this earth and not, as we said. He's both part of this world and of this age, but also of the age to come. You see, in worship and in prayer, we participate in both this world and in the world to come. We might be here now physically, but we go into God's presence. We enter into the heavenly throne room. We go where Jesus is. So there's a sense in which, even though he's physically gone from here, when we worship, when we pray, we go to where he is. But beyond that, note back in Acts chapter 1 what happens after the ascension. The disciples are all standing there looking longingly up into the sky. There's this unspoken wish that Jesus hadn't left them, that he'd come back. They're sort of at a loss of what to do. And two figures in white appear to them, and they say effectively, what are you doing? Gaping up at the sky, dawdling. He gave you a job to do. Go get to work. Now, their work that they did as witnesses is unrepeatable. That is, they saw the Lord in his life. They saw him raised from the dead. They saw him ascend. We aren't witnesses in that sense. But if Jesus worked through the church in Acts, if Acts is a continuation of what he did and what he taught, then if we're the church today, he is still working through us today. We have a job to do. We have a responsibility as the body of Christ. That's what Paul calls us repeatedly. To go out into the world and to continue to carry out the mission of Jesus. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing. You might not know this one. I don't believe it's actually in this songbook. But it's called The World's Bible sums this up well. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. We are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in deed and word. What if the type is crooked? What if the print is blurred? What if our hands are busy with other work than his? What if our feet are walking where sin's allurement is? What if our tongues are speaking of things his lips would spurn. 
how can we hope to help him and hasten his return? How will we respond to the ascended Lord? Will we fall down and worship him? If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do it this morning. To put your faith in him, to turn to God in repentance, to confess that the resurrected, ascended Lord is Jesus. Be buried with him in baptism. Be added to God's people. Begin to go out and live your life as his child. If you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. Maybe you haven't been busy going and carrying out his work in the world as you ought. If that's the case, won't you recommit to doing it today? Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.